are in the uh, middle, middle of a series called uh, Highly or Deeply or Really Misunderstood uh, Bible Passages, and I think we got one today that, at least from my experiences, uh, have been, has been misused quite a bit. And I'll just even warn you on the, uh, on the front side that I'm not sure it's going to get tremendously all resolved uh, today. And, of course, you know, just a little insight here, as a pastor, as a preacher, my, my great win is if you, when you get in your car and you're driving home or later today and you're having a talk, you know, like, that guy's totally wrong. Or, or you know, I, I don't care about me on the whole thing, but that actually something fires up as opposed to just like, yeah, whatever. So, you know, that's my job is to, uh, let's see, what do we say? We, we um, church is to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So, that's what we're after, and we might just get both those done today. Uh, maybe more of the second one. All right, um, so we have a passage. So now that you've had your nice rest there, uh, sitting in that seat, stand up because it's time for the gospel reading, and this won't take too long, so you'll be able to sit back down. But I want, when it gets to the bold part, uh, join me, okay? Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They're talking about Jesus. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? They're laying it on thick here. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, join me, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. All right, you can have a seat. You know, in all my years of ministry, it's got to be one of the most commonly misunderstood Bible passages around. And uh, in the old King James, perhaps you've heard it this way. Perhaps you've heard this on even Sports Center. Because this gets quoted, not even in reference, talk about misunderstood, not even in reference to the Bible or Jesus or anything. Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's, as the old-fashioned language goes. Most often, these words of Jesus are used to say that a Christ follower, a Christian, a person of the Christian faith, should split their politics and their faith. That's usually the misunderstanding. Do not be political. There's politics and there's religion. Keep the two apart. Separation of church and state. Caesar's over here. God's over there. Never the two shall mix. This passage is, is more understood, misunderstood, though, at least from the get-go, because there's a couple of historical pieces that we just don't hear in the passage. And if you've ever thought, like, what in the world is a denarius? And who's Caesar? And, you know, who's on first? This all this kind of stuff? Well, we're going to try and clear a little bit of that up. This will probably move a bit quick for you. First, let's just talk about the coin. The coin is a silver denarius. It's a Roman coin. Um, we're talking here in the first century A.D. On the front, on the obverse, is the head of Caesar. And the words, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And a lot of it's abbreviated there, so if you're trying to read it, not to mention the fact that I think it's mostly rubbed off, it's going to be really hard to understand. 
Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Okay? Augustus had divinity uh, imposed on him by the Roman Senate. And Augustus was Julius Caesar's adopted son. So we're three Caesars away, and the Caesars are now getting divinity. The Senate says, you're divine. Okay? Uh, Now you have to imagine then what somebody being called divine must do inside the heart and mind of a good Jew. (laughs) Like Jesus and his constituencies and the Pharisees and everybody else around in Israel. It was, it was heresy. I mean, it was blasphemy. It's, it's violating the first two commandments. Have no other gods and you can't make idols. And here, lo and behold, is the image of Caesar on a coin that everybody has to carry around. As a matter of fact, just by the way, on the trivia side of things, if you ever see any ancient Hebrew um, pictures and of people, you'll, say, uh, you'll see that they have a bird's head. And it's usually facing sideways. It looks more Egyptian, you know, like some... Um, uh, you know, cuneiform or something like that, whatever those are, Hieroglyph- hieroglyphics, yes. I'm like, what is the bird head doing on a, this Hebrew picture? They, they said no graven images. They said, so don't put anybody's face on anything. So they just replaced it with a bird head. <laughs> like, okay, but you're supposed to know it's a person. So imagine then the, the, the horror of carrying around this picture of this divine son of God. From the pagan Romans in your pocket or your tunic or whatever. Okay? Not to mention, of course, like I already did, violating the Ten Commandments. On the back side of the coin, it gets just as bad. There's the Roman goddess Livia and the goddess of peace and the words Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex Maximus. High priest. High priest. The Hebrews already had a high priest. They went once a year into the Holy of Holies and made atonement for the sins of the people. So can you imagine then, not only is this pagan Caesar person making themselves out to be a divine god, they're also calling themselves high priest. Blasphemy, you know, idolatry on the front side, blasphemy on the back side. Caesar's not a god, he's not a high priest, he's no son of God. Livia's not a goddess, and especially not of peace, because we all know, all need to remember what peace in the Roman Empire meant. It was peace at the end of a spear, Pax Romana. You know, it had nothing to do uh, Pax Romana in the Roman Empire had nothing to do with Hebrew shalom. Shalom meant that, like Psalm 23, we lie down in a green pasture. Everyone's at peace. Everyone has prosperity. The poor are brought up. Everything is equal. But in Rome, Pax Romana meant it's peace because we say so and we have a spear to prove it and a sword. Matter of fact, when Jesus was a boy, there was a tax revolt against the Roman Empire in Israel, because Israel was a real pain in the backside for the Roman Empire, by the way. And there was a tax revolt, and so they just crucified 1,000 Jews on the way into town. Walk by that and say, you want a tax revolt? This is what we do to you. That's Pax Romana, by the way. That's Roman peace. Nothing like Shalom. Okay? So get the coin part down about what's going on in that and how... Uh, much of an atrocity that would be to a Jew. And here's the second historical point uh, that we need to understand to do a little bit more Bible study on this. Uh, Jesus, his answer, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give to God the things that are God's. He didn't come up with that. That's not original to Jesus. The words are not his original words. He's modified the original saying slightly. But the original words were about 200 years earlier by the Jewish high priest, 
His name was Mattathias Maccabeus. And he was the father of two famous sons, uh, the Maccabeans. And Mattathias Maccabeus was asked by an invading Greek general, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, to go into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice to the Greek gods. You get it? They have him at, at sword point. They tell you, here's what we'd love for you to do. We love all your guys' religious, so we want you to go into your Holy of Holies, which is not even time for you to go in there. And we want you to sacrifice to pagan gods in the one place where not even any Jews get to go but the, whole, the, but the high priest once a year. Can you imagine? So, Mattathias Maccabeus, he's, all, he's in there. He's in there with the officials and everybody else around there and all the Greeks and all these pagans that aren't supposed to be in there in the first place. And he's about ready to make the sacrifice. And he pulls out his sword and runs through one of the Greeks. And he cries out and he says, pay back the Gentiles what they deserve and give attention to the command of the law. Now, he didn't last long after that, and that's why his two sons are famous. When Jesus quotes the Maccabean Revolt from 200 years earlier, every Jew in the land knew exactly what he was saying, except he changes it ever so shrewdly. It's not pull out a sword and run the Romans through. It is... Give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. And then you have to unpack it a little bit because it's still not terribly clear. What did he mean? Well, nowadays, when people want to use the words of Jesus to say at least a couple of popular ideas, one says render under Caesar's. What they're trying to say is a strong separation of church and state. Yeah? And the other then on the other side would say, well, it all, we mean what it really means here is that what is Caesar needs to be you know, Caesar's, which is God's in the first place. So we need a Christian nation because this country was founded on Christian principles. So we need to, you know, have all that, get that done. But Jesus is making a theological statement here. And in one phrase, he is saying this. Tiberius Caesar is not divine. He is not a God. And his high priestess on the backside, his high priest saying on the backside, and Olivia the goddess, she's nothing. There's nothing there. It's just a silly coin. Give the guy his coin. He doesn't rule us. He is not our God. We don't belong to him. We are absolutely free from all of his oppression. Which is saying something since they got Roman guards standing all around him all the time. But that's not the amazing part. Then, Jesus in this same saying is telling the religious leaders who are trying to trap him and the Pharisees and the Herodians and all the rest of these people. They're all in power. He's saying, and you guys... You are going down with Tiberius because you are blaspheming against God and you're committing idolatry by buying into this whole Roman thing because they'd made peace treaties with them. They got their own coinage so they didn't have to take the denarius into the temple to pay the tax. That was the money changers in the outer court. Jesus, in one fell swoop, stands up to both the Romans and the religious people of his time. It's a very political statement, yes? And people stood back astonished. They're like, this guy is asking for it. He just in one statement ticked off all the Romans and the religious leaders. Meanwhile, all the people love him. Because they're thinking, Maccabeus is coming back. We're going to get set free. And his disciples, the ones who took the sword, you know, out into the Garden of Gethsemane the night when he gets crucified, right? They're thinking, revolt time. But Jesus is saying, it's not either. 
it's going to be different. So is Jesus political or apolitical or non-political? He's both. <laughs> he's, he's political, but he's saying it entirely different than what everybody expected. And I think that's going on today. Obviously, he was put to death for political reasons. This, um, this piece of papyrus that floats around the uh, sanctuary here, every now and then I had to go rummage back there in that corner and I found it, um, is the, a copy of the sign that hung above the cross. And it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You know, Jesus of Nazareth. And it was in three languages, Latin, Aramaic, and Greek, just so nobody misunderstood it. Of course, you know, the religious leaders come by and say, take that sign down. He's not our king. So, oh, yeah, that's right. Because yesterday, Sadducees and Pharisees, you guys who don't believe in idolatry and have all those Ten Commandments about no idols and stuff, didn't you stand before Pontius Pilate and say, we have no king but Caesar? I thought God was your king. Like this, digging it in. Pilate left the sign up. That's what I do to pretend kings. Pax Romana. Anybody else care to be a king? I got a cross for you. But Jesus was not political because he didn't play the political games of the day. And yes, it cost him his life. This is what we must think hard about this morning. Should Christ followers play politics or separate our faith from politics and government? And if you want to say separate your politics from your faith you're going to have to start asking other questions. Do you separate your child-rearing and your marriage from your faith? Do you separate what car you buy, what television programs? Who's drawing these lines? Who's coming up with all this? Should you go see an R-rated movie or a PG-13 or 14 or whatever other kind of codes they come up with these days? You can see how you could quickly become a fundamentalist because you start coming up with rules. That makes life easy. Very black and white. How do we know which things Jesus would defend these days in our own times? And so let me just kind of get into all the spicy stuff here. Could I, uh, yeah, Chris and, and Scott, if you can pull over the big white marker board. And uh, if somebody has to listen to this on podcast, then I'm going to try and describe it, okay? What we have here on the white marker board are two sides. There's two images of a human outline of a body, okay? And there are two lists of what's considered sins. You're like, hey, man, that's not a sin. Like, okay, just bear with me. This is stuff out of Scripture, and I'm actually, I made up these, okay? I didn't go chapter and verse out of the Bible on them. I'm just telling you what all the hot buttons are these days, okay? You can agree or disagree with me, and I don't want to talk about it. But, um, <laughs> but we have these two, and there's a, there's a left side and there's a right side, okay? And let me run through these things with you. On the left side, there is a list of these sins, homosexuality, abortion, stem cell research. I, like, what the? Like, yeah, stem cell research, pornography, H, HIV, AIDS, human trafficking. You might as well say human sex trafficking. Gay marriage, sex education, and you may have one or two that you're scratching off here and putting on. Now, on the right side is another list of sins or grievances or whatever you want to call them. Homelessness. Payday loans. You realize, like this church last year, we signed a petition to get rid of the thousands of dollars or thousands of percentage points that a payday loan place can loan the poor who use this. And we signed a petition. It was out in the lobby, and the, they came in and they said churches were on this because nobody would start the legislation in Jeff City. And so we all signed it. And then they brought in all the firepower uh, lobbyists and political consultants, and they went through the petition and they violated. In other words, they found out. Uh, your signature and mine, 
that weren't done right on the petition, and they killed the petition to have it put in legislation, and that was the end of that. So if you want to go get a payday loan, it'll be at least 430% interest instead of what we were going to bring it down to, which was 30%, which is so nice, 30% interest. All right, anyway, so I guess you know where we stand on that one. Um, child labor, you know, the kids who made your tennis shoes, uh, hunger and famine, poverty, fair housing, insurance, and we might as well say Obamacare, uh, immigration, you know, which is a hot issue right now, and I'm just going to throw in their third world debt, where the rich nations require debt payments of nations where the interest rates are even more than what they owe, okay? So don't talk to me about whether you disagree or disagree and all this. You can get your own colored marker board and get it going. That'd be fun. But let me illustrate what I've, I've noticed about this. From my observations uh, with the Christians that I've grown up with and am grouped with, we tend to focus on the sins on the left, the homosexuality and the abortion and the gay marriage and all the rest of this. That's what tends to get focused on. That's what gets talked about. That's what people want to protest and get legislation going and get their, you know, take over that office in the Senate or something like that. Here's what I'm observing. Those sins are the sins inside the skin, okay? And your skin is a very important boundary. Just talk to any counselor, okay? And kids, your skin is your first boundary, okay? So there. Some parents need to understand that too. Um, this boundary says all of these sins are sins that are inside of your skin. The other sins tend to be sins that are, let's say, outside your skin. Yes? I mean, can you kind of see it? I mean, you get the kind of drift on it. There are sins inside the skin and there are sins outside the skin. They're either all sins, you know, it doesn't matter. They're both legit. I'm just simply saying you could begin to divide things. What do you notice about these things? What do you notice? Here's what I noticed. Most all of these sins that are inside the skin are sins of sex or sexuality. The other ones, what are they? They're like sins of money and economics. So I'm proposing that you could sort of categorically say the sins that are outside the skin tend to involve money or economic, you know, disparity and so forth. Sins inside the skin tend to involve sex or sexuality or something like that, okay? I mean, you, this is what you want to talk about over lunch. Like, see if you agree with this sort of thing. That's good. The sins that are inside the skin, then, are private. Or some people say, like, hey, man, you Christians just want to get involved with people's bedrooms and stuff like that, so back off, you know? So they're making their statement on this sort of thing. But nonetheless, they are inside the skin, and they tend to be private and personal things. And then there are these other sins that are sort of outside, and they would be involved in politics and economic policies and all sorts of things like this. And some Christians say, like, yeah, we don't get involved with that sort of stuff. We don't do that sort of thing. Separation church and state. Okay? So, like, when we say the treatment of undocumented workers, when Christians say the treatment of undocumented workers, which I, by the way, call uh, uh, undocumented workers, I call them economic refugees because that's basically what they are. I mean... I guess you know where I stand on that one, too. Um, you know, when we say undocumented workers, when that's wrong and that's a sin, and we, we push back, and we say, you know, there's not justice being done. And then I get fired back on by somebody saying and reading and everything else, saying, you know what, social justice isn't in the Bible. I'm like, social justice is not in the Bible? Justice is not in the Bible? Justice is not in the Bible. I mean, I had to kind of, what are the, like, what Bible are you reading? 
You take justice out of the Bible, the whole thing's about justice. Well, not the whole thing, but a whole lot of it. Okay? That would be a whole Bible study in itself. Right? So there tends to be, I'm just saying in the Christians that I've been around, there tends to be a focus on the left side, the sins of inside the skin and sex, and a negligence, or we don't have anything to do with it because that's political stuff, on the sins on the right side about homelessness and money and economics. What about you? You know? Because here's what I tend to think about it, and this will probably get me in trouble. Those sins over here, when people start making sort of biblical theological statements about these money ones and poverty and helping the poor, I think it's a veiled, thin smokescreen to say, keep your hands off my money. But over here, these don't cost us much anything. Follow the money. So what can we say about politics and government policies and economic policies and legislation these days? Well, for starters, any policy that's driven by fear is contrary to the sovereignty of God, that God would actually provide for us. The most common phrase in the Bible, 134 times, is do not fear. Why? Because there's a God who loves you and cares for you. Any policy that's driven by fear is contrary to the sovereignty of God. You might be thinking like, golly, most all government policies are driven by fear. We feared King George. That's why we started the country. Like, Okay, I'm just saying. Fear is not a part of the Christian faith in theological terms. Obviously, we all fear, but we're not supposed to. Is it not true? How many birds are you worth? Why worry about today? I mean, about tomorrow. You have enough worries about today. Look at the lilies of the field. You know, were they dressed more, aren't they dressed more splendidly than King Solomon? Yet do they worry? Don't fear. This is meant to say, get rid of the firepower in your fear factors when it comes to politics if you're a Christian. Because I believe it would then be a statement that says, I don't trust God. You say, like, yeah, well, you need to wise up. Like, maybe so. I need to wise up towards God a lot more. Call me simple, and you might. But I think anything, any policy that, and, and government action that is driven out of hatred or anger or uh, revenge is contrary to the heart of God. Any policy that oppresses the poor and the voiceless, and the disadvantaged that has nothing much to do with the one who was born to a poor peasant girl, birthed into a food trough from the poorest class of people from the backwater of the Roman Empire, and then one day went to a cross for your sins and for mine. And when asked by Pontius Pilate, the most powerful man in his world, said, don't you have anything to say to defend yourself? He said nothing. Nothing. Jesus just kept his mouth shut and made no defense. This is a far cry from the internet rants and bumper stickers and all this other stuff that we all 
tend to get sucked into in politics and otherwise and moral issues. Over 200 years ago, in this country, there was a quiet Quaker, a man named John Woolman. I, I need to see a show of hands. Who has heard of John Woolman in school or anything? Yeah, about the same as first service. You won't hear about him because he'd like it that way. John Woolman basically wrote one book, The Journal, that became famous, even as a very snappy title of his one work, The Journal. He was a Quaker, and in around the year 1750, he traveled the colonies, and he had grown up uh, in Pennsylvania with uh, Native Americans, with Indian children. And somewhere along there, in his Bible reading and in his faith, he began to realize that slavery was wrong. And John Woolman did not go on a rampage and fire and brimstone or anything. Everyone took a great liking to John Woolman, even if they disagreed with him, because he would go up to individual slave owners and say, if you examine your conscience, if you reach deep down inside, you will find, as I have found, a violation that it is wrong and a violation to enslave another human being. Don't you think? That's what he did his whole life. One of the most liked people in the American colonies was a quiet man who did not make a big deal about an extremely important economic thing about enslaving other people. We would do well these days to adopt John Woolman's spiritual strategy and faith. We would do well to treat people as people and not buy into bumper sticker politics. We would do well to stop listening to all the rants and raves and the fear mongering and all the craziness out there and instead go to scriptures. I'll tell you where this began to change for me is about 15 years ago. I started doing solitude and silence retreats and going out to a cabin in the woods and sitting at the feet of Jesus and wrestling through my stuff. And on the side, began to increase, my heart began to increase for a heart for the poor and the disadvantaged. I can't explain it, except, and I know it kind of sounds high and mighty and all holier now, but I'm just saying, when you sit at the feet of Jesus, you get a heart of compassion. Who'd have thunk? We come to the Lord's table today, and it is a moment of profession. It's a moment of confession, but it's professing what you believe. We come to the Lord's table. It's not just a religious ritual. It's a, it's a statement. The table is a statement about belonging to Jesus and his church, which means it's not just a private act. It is a social act, a communal act. We are one. Some of you may even come today for the first time, and I would encourage you to do that. And you may come with a score load of questions and doubts about God and church and everything else, and even a lot of stuff I've talked about. You may disagree with Jesus. But you want to come because you are drawn towards Christians and towards this thing we call Christianity. I would encourage you to go ahead and come. Years ago, a young skeptic stood up with not even intending to hardly do it, but something compelled him in his knees, and he got up out of his seat, and he came forward, and by the time he got there, and he dipped the bread into the chalice and ate it, he became a Christian. With a whole lot of doubts and questions. That may be you today. That's why it's a moment of profession. If you're a devout Christian, 
Maybe today, maybe just maybe through the scriptures, maybe today you realize, like, I think I split my life and I compartmentalize my life. I got my money and I, I've got my child rearing and I got my marriage and I've got my television programs and I've got my politics and I've got my Bible. Everything's all split into various pieces. I, I'm not a unified person. I don't have one thing that controls me. Jesus. I, I, you might have been saved a long time ago, but I think conversion continues to happen all the time. And maybe today is a moment of conversion. And you're like, I'm not ready for all this. You know, you want me to become some sort of peacenik or something? Like, I'm telling you. But you know what? Instead, you come and you say, what you see is what you get, Jesus. I just want to submit to you. I just want to submit to you. I don't want to be Caesar. I want to be God's. And that's a moment of profession and confession. Perhaps it's the time for you to stand up and walk away from your own comforts for the sake of somebody else. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took this bread, once again, in this very humble act, and he broke it. He said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. Eat this. Participate in this with me. I'm not just doing this. We are all doing it. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and after he gave thanks, he, he, he passed it around. He said, everybody drink of this, because now you're going to participate in my blood. In a new covenant, we have a new way of living. Everybody drink. And you will belong to me. And we will start to do life different than all the other voices around us. We will be Christians. And not some political party. Or of this faction or of that faction. We belong to Jesus. And perhaps today, you need to be reminded of that. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray and give thanks for this feast? God, it is a symbolic feast. It is a feast of your presence. Jesus, you offered to us this gift of belonging to you in salvation. May we walk in the light of your presence all of our days. May we be people who follow you. May we not be individuals any longer, but may we share in the struggles and the sin of everyone else. May we be a part of the body of Christ that is called the church. For the last 2,000 years and for the future as it comes, we belong to you. May this moment be clarifying for us as we recommit to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, and we all said, amen. Come whenever you're ready. The servers are here. It would seem right to me that the church of Jesus Christ would not be divided or chosen based upon political party or whatever leaning we may have, but that at the top of our list of what is most important is God and not anything else, no competition. And that would mean that love and charity and fairness and understanding and acceptance would dominate the church of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that is a tough challenge. May we be up for it. Father, we thank you for the feast that you have given us, the feast of your presence and your grace. May we go out into this world, washing out into it, 
the nutrients of your salvation and your love and your acceptance. May we be kind to others. May we go out of our way and take care of those that are injured along the road. And may we be as gentle as John Woolman and others like him when we have to stand up and disagree. Thank you, Jesus, for this salvation. And we all said, Amen. Go in peace.